Good morning, everybody. A reminder that there's no class on Tuesday, uh, 13th, and uh, just just Tuesday. We'll be back Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, I want to remind you to please pray for Roger Bennett, and as he is on his way to recovery, and hopefully, and, and in God's will, and for his wife Sue and their family, uh, who needs energy. <laughs> <laughs> and all the things that we're studying in the Bible, we all need that. Um, <clears throat> a reminder as well that we have a, a prayer group uh, of sorts, not of sorts, but when we get together on, on our Zoom meeting on Friday, we do pray for all those who need praying for. Um, and we've been praying for Roger and Sue. Uh, we're also praying for Carla. Uh, uh, Kathy's that your sister-in-law, right? That... If you would, uh, if you want to, you can jot these names down. I, I put them out there just uh, to, for all to have the opportunity to pray with us. Uh, David Massey, and uh, he was uh, had a procedure this week, so for his recovery, uh, I'm also a person by the name of Salvador, who's a family member of a listener who is in. He lives in Mexico, and he needs he needs God in his life. So Salvador in Mexico. Lily, uh, who's the granddaughter of uh, Joni, Scott and Joni in, uh, in Texas, just pray for her. She needs to be placed. I, I guess I don't want to go into detail. Just pray for their family and that Lily is uh, she's the cutest little girl. Uh, and uh, we're praying that she stays with. It's an adopted granddaughter. I know I'm like confusing you with all these part truths. I know. So just pray for Lily and Carla. And one more, in England, uh, a man by the name of Jamie who's a new believer and needs to uh, you know, have the word of, like all new believers, needs strength and faith. So that's Jamie. And thank you for, for that. So let's open up in prayer ourselves. We'll get right into our service. Let's be thankful, ready to hear God's word about such an important subject, which is his agape love in our lives. And um, and to do that, we need to uh, be ready and able to hear and listen, as you know. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you through your love, have given the gift of your Son to the world, and that we who have believed upon him have made the greatest decision that anyone could ever make. And you have made us the greatest that you have ever made, which is new creatures in Christ. The blessing upon us in our lives is beyond what we could ever imagine. And yet, Father, in your word, you persist in teaching us what you have made us to be. Uh, Our ignorance gets in the way, our willfulness gets in the way, our independence gets in the way. And yet, Father, you patiently teach us and guide us. And as we journey with you, we ask, Father, that we see what what you would have us see, which is you and your life and what that life is. 
which is far, far more wonderful than anything else that we could pursue. May our hearts be enlightened by the Holy Spirit within, by your word. And Father, for those that we mentioned earlier, we lift them all up before you and ask that you intervene in each one's life, that your will be done, and that also, Father, that you would intercede in what we desire, as you have shown that you will do. So we ask, Father, through your Spirit, our hearts would each of us here today be greatly enlightened and gratified. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All rise, please.
can only imagine when all I do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine. So we're going to start in First Corinthians thirteen, and today is about the love of God and how it is the journey to truth. The, without the love of God, we put up shields and walls to the truth. And I would say not to all truth. There are some truths that we're willing to accept because they don't rub against our self, self-interest very much. But there are other truths that really hit us square between the eyes and... Uh, well, they puncture and wound your self-interest. And all of us have to have self-interest changed to God-interest in every area of our lives. All of us do. And because of that, the, the Christian way of life is a journey. And the journey uh, is to a place of maturity, uh, however you want to term it, it is a place where I have given everything over to God and I, by any, in any way, in any circumstance, to any person, my goal is God's will. What is God's will to you and to you and to that situation and to these people and and to myself and to everything? What is the Father's will? And I am... My whole heart just wants to do that. Now, we call that Jesus Christ. (laughs) He did the Father's will in everything, right? And we are all predestined to become conformed to his image, Romans 8, 29, and 30. And so that, that is what we've been made to be. As born again, we're not born into this, we're born again into this. You, when you're born physically, you weren't meant for this at all. And that's why to the world, it doesn't make any sense. But to those of us who have been born again, you have the life, eternal life of God. It is yours. You are that. Right? You are. Jesus said to us, you are the light of the world. So you are eternal life. doesn't make you God, but you have God's divine life. And that life has only one love. And it ain't human love. It's God's love, God's agape love. And this, all of us have a problem with this. Okay, so let's get that out first. All of us have issues with this. And all of us have to change. All of us. So, you know, you're, you're in the same boat with them all. Okay. Uh, now, first, this is a picture of Apollo 8. I'm reading a book about the Apollo mission, or listening to a book about the Apollo mission. So all of these things are on my my mind. By the way, when this this event happened, the astronauts broadcast their uh, <clears throat> on Christmas Eve with on Walter Cronkite on the news 
It's something everybody in America apparently was watching this. I, wa- I was two years old, so I, I might have been. I don't remember. But it was told to the astronauts. There's two of them, uh, and I can't remember their names. But, what you know, when you announce to the world, they orbited the moon ten times, and they, and they were to speak to the people as they were broadcasting this. And not exactly this image, but this is what the astronauts saw for the first time. It's really the rising of the earth, right? Out of all of this blackness and how dead the moon looks, there's one place that has color and life, and that's us. So the astronauts said, well, what are we going to say to the world? And they decided on saying Genesis 1-1 through uh, verse 6 or 7, uh, through verse 6. They, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that's what they said to the whole world. My, how the world has changed. Um, so, why am I using this picture? Well, you know, everything on earth from 238,000 miles away looks pretty good. Easy, nice, fruitful, definitely a lot of water, right? 80% water. Most of it's salt water, I get but... Uh, everything looks nice from this distance. Is that your life? Or what we're going to focus on today is these guys, the Exodus. Uh, This particular picture, uh, the bigger blown-up one, is about a place roughly where we think Hazaroth was, which is the third place that Israel camped after Sinai. Can you imagine about two million people, men, women, children, animals, all camping in that place? Where's the water, Moses? Right? And that's what they asked. Where's the water? There is none. So this pathway that they, and that it's roughly where you see those white lines come together. That's roughly where we think it is. This is the wilderness journey. This wilderness journey has a lot of air time in the Bible. And there's a reason for that. It's because when, it, same with you as it is with them, all of us have to journey through the wilderness. And that journey can be a couple of months or 40 years or you can die there. That choice is yours. But all of us have to go through it. None of us are exempt from the hardness, the hardship, the lack of things, whatever God brings upon us that makes our lives uh, less than enough. And when we're less than enough, we either guard ourselves, it's called self-preservation, we make excuses, Right, we we all do this, so we, you know, I'm not picking on anybody here, right? So we're, we're uh, but we don't have to do that. And there's a whole reason why these difficult situations occur. Who do, who's going to deliver me in that environment? Who's going to bring water? For me, who's going to bring the love that I need to do God's will to all the people in my life, and not just to some. How in the world am I supposed to be overcoming every obstacle that comes my way, every problem, every heartache? Jesus knows it all. The Lord has known it all. Just like he knew everything that would happen to Israel in the wilderness. 
And, and when I look into the promised land, because I get a glimpse of it, do I not? This life of love. Listen, we're focusing on love here, but you could say life of faith, life of love, life of hope. But the greatest of these is love. Uh, this life of agape love, which is absolute loss of self and the seeking of others, taking me out of the center and putting God and others in the center, having my mind linked up with Jesus' mind in the manner of loving others as he loved. How am I supposed to do that? And we are forced. But we see it. You know, we see it, and we can do one of two things. We can go for it. Or we can say, "Mm, I want to go back to Egypt. And that's exactly what happened. In Numbers chapter 14, 12 spies are sent into the promised land. That little piece of green that you see... Well, you know where it is, but I get an opportunity to use my little pen. Right, this little, I need a bigger picture. Right, this up here, right? This little piece of green, right here, That that's, that's a good place. There's plenty of water there. Uh, that's the place to be. All right. it, but it, it's full of ites. There's a bunch of ites there. Parasites, Jebusites, Canaanites, Amorites, all of them. Uh, we sent 12 spies in. Ten spies said, no go. It's too much. They're too big. They're too many. They're too strong. What do we do? When we see God's love, we see this agape that we're to have, which we're going to look at briefly here again. But we're looking at it all week, uh, last week and next week. That um, I, I say, whoa, wait a minute. Um, how about another option? You know, I, it's too, isn't it scary? I mean, you're not alive if you don't think agape is scary. We're talking about laying down your whole life for everybody now, enemies included. Jesus was very, the whole Bible is very clear about this. God so loved the world, right? It's not, and no one is, and it's unmotivated. It's spontaneous. It's not me calculating who deserves what. It is giving, as God wills me to give. It's not just giving for the sake of giving, by the way, either. I mean, we could all just give away everything we have and give it to the UGM mission down the street and say, "Wow, we're all mature believers." But all we did was just give stuff away. What you do is you give it away first in your heart, and then when the people and the the circumstances come into your life that you know that God has willed, you are ready to give as he wills to whomever. And they could be the lowest of the low, or the highest of the high, whatever. But I'm not protecting me or what I have anymore. And that's what the wilderness is for. It's to teach us this. Uh, you know, why didn't God... Now, God created this place, right? This is all his creation. Why didn't he make the Sinai Peninsula a nice, easy, flat, watered, you know, highway full of food and just a joy? You know, like the really good road trip. 
Chris and I were talking about road trips this today. You know, if you ever been on a road trip with your parents or whatever, and you know, you like uh, some of them are fun and some of them are like, God Almighty, it's prison in a car, right? Like, and it's just awful. Uh, why, why does God make this journey from Egypt to the promised land? He could have put anything in between it, but he on purpose puts a, a wilderness there. There's nothing there. No food, no water. He does that on purpose. The problems, the things you need to overcome with yourself and with others and with circumstances are all there on purpose. It's your wilderness journey. The promised land for us is when we get it. The promised land for us is when we've put our lives completely in his hands. It's the most wonderful thing to do. It really is. We resist it. I resist it. You resist it. It's, it's because we're scared. We're scared of the giants in the land. But those giants in the land are nothing. Because who's the one fighting for us? Right? So the wilderness provided a buffer between liberation and land. Liberation is, for you and me, the moment of salvation. We became brand new creatures in Christ. We're liberated, just like Israel from Egypt. But God used the wilderness, the exodus, as a crucible. Uh, I was an analytical chemist for years, and we use crucibles a lot. Crucibles are made of, generally made of a ceramic that can handle hundreds and hundreds of degrees. And that's what crucibles are for. They're for cooking stuff down to, you know, the whatever little its and bits and pieces would be left after everything gets cooked off, everything else. And that's what God is doing to us. Put us in the crucible. Because he's removing from us the things that should be removed. And all of us hang on to. That's why it's scary. Now, God is not just interested in getting stuff done. He can do everything himself without so much as a blink of an eye. He can do anything he wants. God is interested in showing us how to be like him. That's what he's interested in. That's what the wilderness is for. To show himself to us. And being like God is the truth of life. Okay, so think of the word being. Being, it's the word to be. It's actually God. When God said, I am that what I am, he used that word in Hebrew, uh, the I am. It's the word to be. It's a word of existence. And being is existing. And God is the only one. We're all created. He is uncreated. It's very important. He is the being. I am that what I am. So therefore, being is only him. And his. And there's a truth to that. So when we see the word truth, which we'll see here today, truth means what God's truth is. Everything else is man-created. So when I create my own ideas about what God is, if I create my own ideas about what Christian love is or agape love is, that's my idea, and my idea is not God's, to put it simply. As God said to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, my ways are higher than your ways. As high as the heavens are from the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. 
And we want to bring those waves down to a more palatable place for us. Do I really have to give all of myself? And God's not going to quit on you. Just like with Israel in this place. Um, and they should have been in the promised land setting up camp in less than a year. In a few months. Twelve spies go in. This is in Numbers chapter 14. They come out. Ten spies says we can't take it. The whole of the people would have said, hey, dummies, did you just see what God did in Egypt? And God just gave us water from a rock and manna from heaven. And we've already defeated an army that is well above our pay grade. Uh, we already did that. That's the place where Moses had his hands up in the air and they had to hold his hands up. It's in Exodus 17. And, uh, and so, yeah, shut up. We can take the land. But they didn't. There's two guys who did. Caleb and Joshua. What makes them so different? Was it the tribe they're from? They weren't from the same tribe. Was it, you know, what is different about Caleb and Joshua than the other million is basically faith. That's it. And when love says do this or do that or you know, think this way or that way, it's faith that really brings us to it. Say, I have to, as scared as I am. I have to. It's God's life for me. And when you do it, things are going to change in you in a real good way. Without God's agape love, everything that we do pretty much amounts to nothing. Uh, I hate to say that. I'm fortunate that I have God's word to back me up on that. I, I don't have the authority to say anything of that caliber, but God does. Look at 1 Corinthians 13.1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, nobody can speak with the tongues of angels. So this is just Paul saying, look, if you could do the impossible but you don't have love, you're just a, a symbol, a noise. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Why is that? Move mountains? Come on, man. That makes me something. But because who who is love? God is love. If I don't have love, I don't have eternal life. Now, don't get me wrong here. You can you possess eternal life. And we saw this all last week, and it's a wonderful aspect of this truth. Having eternal life means that you have the love. Eternal life has this love. That's what it does. To God is love. You have God. You have the love. Uh, Romans 5.5 5 says it's poured out in our hearts. The love of God through the Holy Spirit who was given to us, we have it. It's ready to go. It's just, it's got to mix with knowledge and faith and maturity. I've got to put it into practice. God did not design us to be observers of God sitting on the sinner's bench, not getting into the game. God designed us to live the life. And if we're not living the life, we could have all knowledge. See that? I could have know all the doctrines. I got them all down pat. I got them memorized. I'm a theological dictionary. But 
If I don't have love, what does Paul say here? I am nothing. Because love is gone. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. It's a bold statement. I'm glad Paul says it. Because it really puts it in perspective. So Some have said, well, you don't need knowledge. Did he say that? <laughs> you don't need uh, faith. Did he say that? It's just all lovey-dovey, emotional, you know. That's not God's love. Of course you need faith, you need knowledge, you need the whole thing. It's just that if you don't have love, which really means that you take this knowledge and faith and you put it into practice in the way that Christ would, what do you have? Uh, Paul says nothing. So God has made it so that the people in our lives and the circumstances we find ourselves in demand agape love. Or we get bitter, angry, cranky, angry more. Trying to think of where I was just a couple of days ago. A portion of yesterday, too. Uh, You know... (laughs) Got a five-year-old in the house. Come on, and uh, you know it's, uh, yeah. It's I find myself, and I'm like, wait a minute, why are you so stupid? You know, I, well, that's what I am. Uh, we without agape love, we cannot do anything in the manner that God wants us to. You can't. That's why it's nothing. The manner that God says to do it. We have to. And if we don't have love, we can't. So agape is far more important than a lot of people think it is. It's not just an emotional thing, is it? It's a giving up of self and removing self from the center of our lives. So observing agape, saying another or reading about it in the Bible, important to do. But if that's all you have, you're not living it. Knowing of it, talking about it, doesn't live it. Those things are fine, but it has to be lived. If we exist in the eternal life that we possess by grace, then agape is always expressed. And the result? Peace and joy. So, we have, uh, for God's way or manner to be our way, we have to choose it. And we have to choose it as vital. And that's I, I mean I focus so that red line you see there is the one of the theories because we don't know the exact pathway that they took the Exodus through the wilderness but that's roughly it that's the probably the more popular one where they go up to Kadesh Barnea and they send the twelve spies in and then the twelve spies are in there for forty days and when the people say we need to go back to Egypt God says you're going to spend forty years in the wilderness and that's that big circle. 40 years. And and a great number of them died there. So you can be in the promised land. Let's say you could be at maturity quicker than than, than not. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you can. You know, I didn't know this near as well as I know it now. From Scripture, I mean. We've been reading about the Thessalonians, right? Thessalonians, Paul says, you're doing great, excel still more. And then in 2 Thessalonians, he said, your love has abounded. How long have they been saved? Less than a year. 
I've been at this for 32 years now. <laughs> yeah, that that's me in that circle right there, running around, running around, <laughs> altering the plan of God to my specifications and my procedures and running around and running around. And God says, Do you, are you done? Are you tired of being thirsty and not living in the promised land? Uh, can I have? No. No, I'm not. Obviously, I'm not. Uh, <clears throat> it's vital that we choose it. It's vital that we choose it. God could force us to be loved, but that's not love. God chooses it. So must we. We choose, If you don't choose it, if you don't see it as vital and choose it, you don't have it. You don't. And that is an awesome, it's an awesome revelation to see that why does God put us through all of this stuff? He's teaching us to grasp it. Grab hold of eternal life, Paul writes. Grab hold of it. We have to choose it. And in our, you know, and we're bothered by many things that offer up to us that compete with this, with God. They compete with God. They compete with God's affections towards us. And all of us have them. And, and a great many of them just come from our own sin natures. That's why we've got to be diligent. We have to be diligent every day to choose it. Hence prayer. Hence study. It has to be every day. I'm not telling you how much to study every day or how much to pray every day. But if you're leaving that aside, then you're going to be running around in that circle for a bit longer. But you have to choose it, right? Who's going to choose it for you? Nobody. You can admire it in another person and say, I should really do that. <laughs> you have to choose it. That's why God is sending us through the wilderness. So uh, observing, uh, so we have to participate. We have to strive in prayer. So speaking of what agape is, let's take this for example. Uh, I've got to serve others. Right. Everybody in my life I have to serve. And, and so how do I serve them? What do they need? Because not every, you know, I don't know what they need. I'm not God. I can't figure out what it is that you need. So how am I supposed to find out? Prayer. Do you pray, strive in prayer with God for others? What do they need? I ask myself the same question. I'm not standing up here as some spiritual guru or some ultra master or Jedi of the spiritual life. I am not. I have to do the same thing. And I have to strive in it. Strive in prayer asking God, what does my friend need? What does my enemy need? How can I affect them and affect them towards God? You know, that's what I want. The goal has to always be right. And that will always clarify. Sometimes I have to do nothing. Sometimes I say nothing. But sometimes I do something. If I'm focused on the fact that I want them closer to God, an unbeliever as a believer, a believer who's weak and not getting with it, getting with it. We have to participate in acting upon what we find. Once God reveals what you need to know in prayer, then you've got to do it. You've got to act upon it. 
We have to let go of all self-interest in order to do it right. Say, I'm going to help you, and I highly expect that you get better. Because I want to see you get better. You know, and you know what I mean by that? I mean that in a bad way. You, you can want to see somebody get better in a good way, but you can also want to see somebody get better because that reflects on you or it makes your life easier or, or, or you know, it's the motivation ultimately is self. And that's why human love can do a lot of good, but ultimately human love has self as its goal and it's not agape. Um. God could easily do for all, couldn't he? God could easily fix all problems. He could make everybody's path straight and flat and easy and abundant. But he doesn't. He allows the problem. In some cases, he directly causes them. And the hurt and the pain comes upon us so that we're faced with our ultimate need. We need God's love. So the road to self there's a road, sorry, road to God. There's a new and living way, as this described so wonderfully in Hebrews chapter 10, 19 and 20. The new and living way is of Christ. The road of self is ultimately leading to self-interest. Don't um, think, and we'll, we'll spend a class coming up here on what Eros really is, but Eros does have a lot of good in it. Don't think that it's just like the ultimate jerk, selfish person. It could be a really nice person, a really good person who does a lot of good. But ultimately, eros is for self, self-elevation. You know, I, I met somebody uh, this week who we were talking about raising kids and stuff. And, and she was relating to me that when she was a kid, she has her and her sister and her parents said to her, this was their main theme to their kids, don't embarrass us. And she was like, you know, and she was like, yeah, I don't want to embarrass them. Apparently, her sister did not take that advice and embarrassed everybody in herself. But also, this girl, related, she's in her 30s now, I think. I didn't ask her age. I don't go around asking women their ages or their weights or, you know. That's just the kind of guy I am, you know. <clears throat> um, but, you know, she said it really messed with her. It took a while for her to say, well, you know. I, have, I do have some of my own needs. But imagine that if God said to us, look, please, don't embarrass me. <laughs> um, and you see, that is, what is that? Well, God is the only one who actually can say that legitimately because he can truly be self-interested. He's the only one who can. But for us to say to another, you know, please, that reflects poorly on me. Ultimately, you can do a lot of good with that. But ultimately, that's not agape. And look, and if if you're struggling with determining, wait a minute, what does agape then look like in my life? I'm very grateful. Because I can only tell you what the Scripture says. And the Scripture describes what it is. And for you to incorporate that into your own life and your own understanding, you have to find it yourself. You have to... Grab hold of this from the Scripture. I know that I don't know it all, but I'm giving what I, the best that I can do from what the Scripture says. I mean, this topic is way over my head for sure.
I mean, I can only do what the scripture says. Uh, so eros love is generally or ultimately a missable solution. I love when I get a chance to throw a chemistry word in there. Missable means that you've got two liquids that uh, become homogenous as a mixture. Technically, that's not missable, but it's a cool picture. But uh, <clears throat> good deeds, strong of feelings, self-interest, though. And it mixes all together. And you know what gets thrown in here is that a, uh, the word agape kind of gets sucked into that broadness. Because eros is huge. It's a broad, broad thing. Whereas agape is God. And God is a narrow road in this world. <clears throat> so, we have to put away our fear of this and go for it. We have to go by faith and go into the promised land. Doing what it says. All right, look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is. All of these are verbs. There's 15 of them. They're not adjectives. Paul is using verbs so that we understand that these are actions. Okay? So, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. Really what that means is it's eternal. Um, Did you get all that? Generally, we run through this list at that speed, and we're like, oh, okay, yeah, like, do we understand each individual part? That we must. We must. Um, what, this, what I'm focusing on today is up to verse 6, the last part, the last one in verse 6, before we get to bears of the all things, which is verse 7, it rejoices with the truth. So what does that mean? I mean, it sounds like, you know, if you have agape love, you like the truth. You know, truth is good. And it's a little more deeper. It's actually a lot deeper than that. It's not the fact that you're like, oh, I hear truth and I think it's great. I mean, of course you do. But that's not what Paul is getting at. It's a great contrast to the one that is before it. Rejoices with truth is contrasted with does not rejoice in wrongdoing. That word unrighteous mean, unrighteousness means doing wrong. It doesn't rejoice in doing wrong. So that one would say, we say, well, uh, doesn't, does that mean I don't like doing wrong? No, it's deeper than that as well. <laughs> that rejoicing in, uh, sorry, not rejoicing in unrighteousness means that if I see others behaving in wrongdoing or unrighteousness, I am not in the joyous way of putting them down or condemning them or rebuking them. You know, in other words, I can't wait to rebuke you for your wrongdoing. Other than that, I see wrongdoing in others. It causes me sorrow for their sake. Not for my sake, for their sake. And I think to myself, how can I help them to go from wrongdoing to rightdoing so that their lives are closer to God. And that's what that means. 
So therefore, rejoicing in the truth is a term to joyfully celebrate the truth. And that's technically what it means. I joyfully celebrate the truth. Joyfully celebrate the truth. Have you ever avoided certain passages or doctrines because they punctured your self-interest? When I don't mean avoid them. It's just that either they're brought up in Bible class or maybe you read them in your Bible and all of a sudden the uh, mental learning acuity kind of gets shut off. <clears throat> Have, has a Christian wife ever shut down her humble listening skills when the pastor started teaching about husbands, be subject to your wives? Kind of like the, the, the listening concentration level goes down. How about when the husbands uh, here love your wives as Christ loves the church and laid, him, laid his life down for her, and then you're like, eh, you know, whatever, in and out. You're not really focusing. How about when you're involved in an adulterous, if you are, I'd say when, <laughs> sorry, if you are involved in an adulterous relationship, and then here comes the message on sanctification. Do you let it really speak to you, or do you all you put up the self-justification for, I know what's coming, Pastor, and so it's almost like you know I'm pushing it aside. I'm indulging in sexual sins. Here comes the sanctification message. I shut it off. I love to gossip, and the pastor's speaking about no unwholesome word proceeding from your mouth. And you justify, but you're not even really listening as you justify. How about when the pastor shows the scripture that pokes holes in your preconceived notions of the truth? You thought you knew what that was, but maybe you don't know. Well, that stupid pastor, he can't possibly know what he's talking about. I already know this. And he might not be don't know what he's talking about. I'm not saying that. But do you shut down the listening? Why do we do that? Self-interest. Self-interest gets attacked by truth. We know. Right? So it's saying, I'm not going into the promised land here. I, I only want what jives with me. I only want what's comfortable to me. And I'm talking about from Scripture now, not from people. Have you ever started self-justifying before you started really learning? Would you like to be the sort of believer who fears no passage and learns every truth and by which you mature every day? Think of the ground you would cover in the spiritual life as you took in every truth. You had no no self-interest to protect and that you learned everything with a whole heart. Your divine life would grow and grow and grow. And you'd be out of the wilderness sooner rather than later. And if you're like me and you're starting to figure some things out after 32 years in the wilderness... (laughs) Oh, well, you can't go back and relive it. You just can't. Get in there. Get in. There's no time to lose. So the key to learning, consistently learning and maturing, is agape love. That's why love rejoices with the truth. I hope you see this. Um, 
See, agape love takes me out of the center and puts God and others in the center. And so when truth comes, I've got nothing to protect. Let it in. I've got not see when when we don't have agape love, we've got walls up all over the place because we're protecting a self-interest. It's my feelings, it's my pride, it's my my it's mine. Whatever mine is that I'm protecting, my sinful ways, my sinful life, my addiction, whatever it may be, I'm protecting that. That's mine. God doesn't go in there. Those are the rooms in our souls that we padlock and padlock. You have ten padlocks on it and the Caution tape and, you know, God, don't go in there. Nobody's allowed in there but me. Love joyfully celebrates the truth. So Paul is drawing a contrast here, a contrast that we've been trying to draw for the last several classes. It doesn't mean that I just agree with doctrine. That is true. It doesn't only mean that. That's too vague and too plain, frankly. Paul is after something else here. Paul knows that God's love and God's love, uh, and Paul knows God's love, and God's love has completely transformed Paul. He knows this. He desires the church to know it. Vague wooden definitions aren't going to break through the walls that we put up to our self-importance. What has he done before he gets to love rejoices with the truth? He has broken down our egotism. And look at them all. All the ones that are not. First, two that are. Love is patient. Love is kind. Agape removes the power of self-interest. The interest of self from the center of our lives and put God at the center. Who is the center of your show? Who's the main character in your story? Is it you? Is and you know, I, I, if if it is, you have my my compassion, <laughs> uh, my condolences, and my compassion. This has been that for me for the majority of my life. I mean, I wouldn't come out and admit it, you know, but I can admit it now for whatever reason. Maybe because I'm moving out of the spotlight. I hope it's a sign of maturity, but. If you're in the middle of this, and, and you can fool yourself into thinking that you're not, but if everything, every, everything everybody says, everything that happens, everything is how it affects you, then, you know, this wilderness journey is, and God is showing it to you. You know, I'm, I'm very careful. I'm trying to be very careful. I'm not trying to condemn. It's conviction, sure. I'm convicted as much as anybody, but... Um, you know, it's also this God saying to us, I can make this way better for you. And it's so much greater than you think it is. Give your life to me. Which means, love like I love. Jesus said it in the upper room, love one another as I have loved you. After what? After he washed their feet. He said, do you know what I've done to you? And then he said, I want you to do the same for, other, for each other. And he didn't mean to physically wash each other's feet. He meant to do what he did. He said at that same time, if someone walked into the room right now, I'm paraphrasing, if someone walked in, who would they say is the servant? Me washing your feet or you sitting 
having your feet washed. If someone came in, they would say that I'm the servant when I'm not, am I? I am the Lord. And he would say at that, right after that, the greatest of you is your servant. See, agape is tied right to the servant. That's what the servant is. That's why he's a servant. Because he has God's love. Well, he has a matured God's love. We all, If you're a believer, you have it. You have God's love. This is a matured God love. So, love is patient and love is kind. And here's what it's not. Jealous. Love does not brag. <coughs> is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. That means to act in an ill-mannered way in certain circumstances. Uh, jealous is, uh, is, and all of these words, they're verbs that have imagery to them. And I, I knew I wouldn't have time to do the imagery and the message today. But when we get back together on Wednesday, Wednesday is going to be the same message with all the imagery to it. Because this needs to be repeated quite a bit. Um, jealous means to burn within. Now, I love that because jealous, we know what jealous is, but when you put it in the terms that it really is, the burning within. If you've ever been jealous, oh, I, I just saying that brings me back to a time when I really was, and it's just awful. Uh, love does not brag. That word means to make a parade. <laughs> Can you imagine? They say, hey, there's a parade in town today. Oh, really? What for? For Joe. He's putting it on. He paid for the whole thing, and he's on the main float, and every float says Joe. <coughs> Who wants to go see that? Joe does. That's what brag is. It means to make yourself a parade. Uh, arrogant is pride. Uh, does not act unbecomingly. That means to be in a situation, and there's a right way to act, and you don't care. Doesn't seek itself. Seek its own, meaning you don't, you know, you're not supposed to hang out with your friends. I've heard that interpretation before. It's hilarious, but it's not it. Does not seek itself. I mean, you don't seek you. There's you out of the center, right? Is not provoked. That's when somebody says something, and it, you know, if you have egotism and you're protecting something, something pokes it or wounds it, and you act in provocation. It means to be agitated within. You poked. You know, if you have agape, you can't be poked. You know, imagine Jesus saying, how dare you say that to me? I'm the Lord of glory. I'm going to kick your butt. Imagine that. No, he didn't have that. There was nothing to poke. I shouldn't say that. Uh, does not take into account a wrong suffered, just like it says it there that's really well done in the New American Standard. It means that you're an accountant, and all of those people who poked you, you see, you wouldn't have an account if you couldn't be poked. But since you can be wounded, everybody who's wounded you, there's an account. And you treat them accordingly. So remember, agape doesn't calculate who gets what. But if you keep an account, oh, that person, I remember when you said that to me. All right. Makes me think of a, my favorite brother 
in my family who would keep an account. Man, would he keep an account. Uh, so anyway, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness. That means in wrongdoing. I don't rejoice in the wrongdoing of others. Why would I rejoice in the wrongdoing of others? It makes me feel superior and I can beat them down. So, and then rejoices with the truth means with self out of the way, truth just flows in. All truth. Give it to me, God. Tell me, tell me what it's about. I want it all. Nothing's hindering me from learning you. See, without agape, you've got all these things in the way. And your wisdom, small. And God is saying, look, just give it to me. Give me you. I got you. I got your back. I got everything. Sparrows, lilies, do you know it all? Seek first my kingdom, and I'm going to give you everything. And it's going to be way more than you ever imagined. So give it up. So imagine this person, person, person who could speak. He waits patiently always waiting for the right timing that will secure the welfare of another. He is warm, generous, and welcoming of all others, even his enemy. His ambition is the Lord's will, which will give him perfect peace. He never talks about his achievements. He is approachable by all, and he's giving to all. When he is insulted or provoked, he responds with kindness, always considering how he can help his attacker see the light of Christ. In every situation, he knows how to act with virtue and integrity, and he does so. He is always alert and sober to the need of the moment and others around him. He does not seek himself, but is alert to others. He seeks God's will for their needs. Sometimes others try to get under his skin, but he has no self that he needs to protect. He does not keep an account of the wrongs done to him. His hope is that all change and see the wonderful life of Christ. All. When others do wrong, he has sorrow for their sake. He has no desire to rebuke even when it's justified and he needs to. He doesn't want to. And because his heart is so very free from self and filled with the love of God, the growth of his wisdom has no impediments and he is very wise. He loves the Lord and loves the Lord's creation. He longs to be at home with the Lord. But until that time, his ambition is to be pleasing to the Lord. Now, what I tried to do there was personify the passage we just read in a person. I took all the characters, all 15, actually, minus the all things part, up to verse 6. I put them all into a person. At least I tried. Now, here's another person. Imagine this person. If you do not do what he expects in the time that he expects it, and hope of his help, all hope of his help to you is gone. He is often cold. He may give you, sorry, he may give to you, but his heart is always keeping a record of it. He will expect in return for what he has given. He looks at what others have and how they are and compares himself with them. 
seeking how to be better, higher, and greater than everybody. He is jealous and intimidated by our first person, the gracious person. He's intimidated and jealous. When he does something well, he is sure to tell you about it, relishing in his own part in his story. His portrayal of himself is inflated and embellished just enough to show how great he is. A good portion of his conversation is about himself because he is at the center. He can be ill-mannered in situations that call for integrity because he's thinking of himself. He seeks himself in public and in social settings. He is often tired and anxious from having to protect his self-interest all the time. He is provoked when his self-regard is wounded, whether real or imagined. Of all of these perceived hurts to himself, he keeps a running account and treats the people in his life accordingly. If he finds someone truly wrong, he relishes in the opportunity to rebuke them. And all the better if it's in public. This person has a little truth about life. Well, you know, I was going to ask here, which one would you rather be? But it's pretty obvious. That second person, can a Christian be that? I, I am. I I think so. I know there's some out there who don't think so. They're the Lordship Salvation people that I love to talk about. But I, you know, at whatever level, I mean, the way I wrote that out really described a complete jerk. But Christians can be that, and we could be somewhere less than that. You know. I've, uh, but the point is, in this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, self is gone. Now, I'm, I don't say self is gone. I don't want to say that because you don't lose your identity here. You, you are unique to who you are, and God loves you as you are. But the, that first person is the personality that God wants to, de- to design in you. And how I wrote it is just general. For you, it'll look particular to you. God's love in you is going to make you what God has always wanted you to be. So I'd say go over again the same pa- you know this passage 4 through 8 or 4 through 7 in your own mind and draw your own pictures. The heart of agape has already been given to you as a believer. It's already yours, just like the children of Israel were already God's before they left Egypt. It's ready to live in you. It's ready. It's ready to go. You're not lacking anything. Besides wisdom, you know, knowledge, you have to learn and, and the faith to do it. God has a wilderness, though, for you to walk through. <laughs> so, you know, what doctrines can I follow to avoid the pain of the wilderness? Uh, none. None. We're called to suffer for his namesake. It's for everybody. The wilderness is going to be hard. You know, when it, it's not going to get easy until that third song we sang is true. When you're walking with the Lord face to face. The longer I remain in trying to to really do Christianity right, the more I long for that day. So it's just no matter how how much you put into this, just. Life here is never going to be perfect. And you're not going to be perfect, and neither am I. No matter how much you love this, you're not going to be perfect. 
And there's lessons in everything. The, the, you know, you add to this the grace of God, and like I was reading today in Hebrews 4, speaking of the, the, in Hebrews 4, the Exodus generation comes up again. They come up a lot in the Bible. We're very grateful for them. Yeah, them and the Corinthians, right? But the ex- it says, why, why did they suffer so much in the wilderness? And the writer of Hebrews says they didn't mix the promises of God with faith. And they didn't have faith. And then, God, and then the writer goes on to say, God gave us a Sabbath. A Sabbath is not just doing nothing. A Sabbath is living in the prosperity of God. That's what a Sabbath is. A Sab- the first Sabbath was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and the woman, on the seventh day, everything's done. They rest in the blessings of God. That's what Israel was supposed to do every Saturday. Rest in the blessings of God. And the writer of Hebrews says, we have that every day now. Rest in the blessings of God. Be at rest, no matter what work you have to do. That's why Sabbath doesn't mean doing nothing. But then he concludes that passage with, the Lord knows you're weak. And he sympathizes with your weaknesses. This is how he closes it. So he says, come to the Lord with boldness and confidence and seek at his throne his mercy and grace and you will find help. Yeah, so do I. And it's, as the other day I was all wigged out about something and I'm talking to Chris about it and she says, why don't we pray about it? I'm like, wow, what a thought. Holy cow, yeah. Why didn't I think of that? What a difference it makes. We just prayed together and it was like all of a sudden this weight is lifted. Why is it lifted? Because we threw it on the Lord. There's some passage in the Bible about that, I think. So, uh, Oh, here they are. There they are in Hebrews 4, 2. I'm out of time, though, but there's the Exodus. Not united with faith in those who heard. Truth can be plainly seen only when we are disengaged from our personal power agenda. That's the point of today's message. Truth can plainly be seen. We have to be removed from our personal power agenda. And that's what agape is. There's great benefits to it, being wise. And I know if you're like me, if I if I go back sometime, uh, meaning, uh, sorry, I should too much there. If if you're like me, I'll say, well, uh, hold on, hold on. Doesn't wisdom come first, then agape, or does agape come first? God's like, where where have I given you some formula? Look, just do it. <laughs> Learn and apply your learning to others in love, do my will. It's obedience, humble obedience. Jesus said, look, you love me, you'll keep my word. If you do that, I and my Father will build our house with you. This, I love that passage, John 14, 23. I love it. Can you imagine going through life in a house that the Father and the Son has built for you? It's a daily battle. To grab hold of eternal life, it is. 
I lax on this in any day, and you've done it, and I've done it, and then my mind goes astray to whatever. I get occupied with myself and my problems or how my problems or how that person affects me and where is my joy and peace and happiness is long gone. I'm back in the uh, Agaba. That's the <laughs> the place here uh, way back. Where are we? This part. This part. Right? I'm unwired. When they, when they had a head from this place and up, this is where the fiery serpents came out. And this is where they were like, Moses, come on. And they're complaining and complaining and complaining. That go out of the, oh, look, my head's cut off. <laughs> I forgot I had a monitor there. But, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, <clears throat> this place, if you look that place up, it is, oh, talk about nothing. It is nothing on, it's like the ghetto of nothing. Terrible. And they complain. God sent the fiery serpents at them. Right? He does it to us too. You want to keep complaining? Here they come. But there's a solution, right? You know, remember the solution is beautiful. The bronze serpent. So we have to be disengaged. It's a daily battle. Uh, if we imagine that eternal life is something other than what it is and we take hold of that, then we're taking hold of something that is of our own making. And that's, that's what Paul would say, it accomplishes nothing. No matter who you are, you are not born for this. But if you're a believer, and it's a wonder and a miracle, you were born again for this. That's the whole reason you're born again. It's the whole reason God gave us His Son so we could live this life. You know, if it were just about us just going to heaven for a long time, there wouldn't be any of the wilderness stuff. It is very important to God that we get it because it's what He's made us for. <clears throat> so, my last passage. Come on. Paul writes, 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. It is definitely a fight. The enemies, the flesh, the world, the devil, those are your enemies. And we've got to fight it. The rewards are great. It's worth it. So worth it. And you're called to it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the calling. That the truth will come to us, uh, we know, when, our, when your love, which you have given us, matures, and then all the things that we're protecting in ourselves, our self-interest, our self-power, is taken out of the center of our lives, and you are put in the center, and by which we will serve others and find your joy. All of us, Father, have a level of fear of this, and we ask, Father, you intervene in each of our lives to remove our fear so that we will boldly go forth. All of us are called for this. All of us who have believed in your Son. We thank you for him and for your word. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, we'll take our offering and let you go.
going to pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give. Thank you for the finances that you provide for us so that the church can continue. And um, But we give, Father, as your servants in worship of you. Uh, bless this offering in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be together, to share with one another, to express your love to you and uh, to each other through your word and your spirit, all by your providence that you've given us. The final moments of our service are always dedicated to anyone who is listening, who has not come to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you haven't believed in Christ, I beg you to please consider the Lord Jesus Christ do not overlook the fact that he is the, uh, the God, the Son of God, who has become a man. He is the God, and he has become a man so that he could die for you, so that he could pay for your sins through his sacrifice. He has done so for every member of the human race. And so what you have to do is put your faith in him. Faith, believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and you will be saved. He died for you that he's resurrected on the third day and sits at the right hand of God. Now, he will return. And if you believe in him, you'll return with him and have eternal life with him. It's a life of abundance and grace and mercy and freedom. Believe in Christ and you'll be saved. We thank you, Father, for all that you are and do. And may we be all thankful this day. In Christ's name, amen.
Thank you.